Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. And I really do hope that you and yours are well whenever it is that you're listening to this. I'm recording this on a Thursday evening as I normally do, um, but it's just, I feel strange because I'm doing so in the wake of news that has come in from Barcelona, uh, an attack, a terrorist attack on the Ramblas during which, at the moment, they're saying 13 people have been killed, many more injured, some of them very seriously. And it's... it's uh, I'm a bit freaked out. I'll tell you why I'm a bit freaked out. A, because, well, I, I love Barcelona. I used to live there, as many of you know. It's a town that I, I really... It's just my favourite place my favorite place, and I was there only very recently. But B, my daughter lives in Barcelona. She lives there with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend works in a kiosk on the Ramblas. It was the uh, kiosk into which, or outside which, the van drove, destroyed part of the kiosk, and obviously killed and injured so many of those people. Thankfully, he is all right. Uh, his workmates are all right. I think one of them, as far as I know, has some minor injuries, but obviously they're suffering from shock and trauma. But thankfully, thankfully, nothing more serious than that. Not that it's not serious, but in the grand scheme of things, you know what I'm saying. But what really freaked me out was the fact that we were just over there in July and the night before we were going home, we went down to the Ramblas, to that kiosk, to say goodbye to uh, her boyfriend. And we were going to go meet her. Uh, she was going to work and we were just going to pop in and say goodbye to her. But she was there with him. And, uh, you know, we all said our goodbyes, had a hug and a kiss, as you do. And to then see something happen so awful, so appalling happen in literally, and I, I mean this literally, the same spot we were standing in just over a month ago. It just made it a bit more visceral. And then there was the just a few minutes after I got in touch with her earlier this afternoon. What happened was I saw news of this and I texted her, sent her a WhatsApp message saying what was going on. Had she heard about it? Was she okay? Obviously, that was a, the first thing I was thinking of. She then obviously tried to get in touch with her boyfriend, couldn't get in touch with him. So she was obviously freaked out. I was freaked out at this end. The news then came through that he had been in touch with her and and uh, and he was okay. So that was that was that. But for a while there, it was really, 
really quite freaky and my stomach and my heart and my head is not right for it. And I know that many of you listening to this who live in London, who have gone through similar things this year and in the past, people who live in various parts of the world that have also gone through things like this in Paris, for example, in America, where attacks like this have happened. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here or how I'm feeling in some weird way. I felt very far away from her. I'm very upset for her. Um, On top of just the sheer horror and the the abhorrence of watching something like this happen again, regardless of where it is, that it's somewhere I know so well, where I lived for so many years, that I love so much, makes it... I don't know what it makes it. It makes me feel so upset for the people who've lost their lives, for their families and friends, for the people of that city. At this time of the year... That would have that would have been packed, the Ramblas. Local people, people on their holidays, men, women, kids, just not expecting something like this, for their lives to be changed so suddenly and irrevocably. Um I just can't get my head around why people want to hurt each other like this. I find it the world a fucking strange and scary and upsetting place right now. In so many ways, these fake ideologies that these people hide behind to justify something that is completely unjustifiable, to carry out an attack on innocent people who are minding their own business, who haven't done anyone any harm, In a beautiful city, not that it matters, does it? it doesn't matter whether it's a beautiful city or a shithole, it doesn't matter. The things that people think are acceptable these days that are not acceptable, they shouldn't be acceptable to anybody, to any decent person. Leaving politics or whatever exactly to one side, whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you're right wing or left wing, There are things that are just simply unacceptable. This is one of those things. Carrying flags with swastikas on them, that's another one of those things. Imagine having to say in 2017 that Nazis are not acceptable. There is no face of Nazism or white supremacy that's acceptable or should be tolerated or justified or condoned in any way. It's 2017. 2017. But maybe what it tells us is that some people, it doesn't matter for them whether it's 2017 or 1917 or 1817, whatever the fuck goes on in their heads in the empty spaces where there should be some fucking brains or the other empty space where there should be a heart. I guess we're just going to have to deal with those people deal with the damage that they inflict on society and inflict on all of us. And all we can do is do our best to be good and to be decent and to be kind 
to care for one another, to look after each other, to love one another. Because we only get one fucking go at this. You get one go at this. And some cunt could come along in a van and fucking end it in an instant without you even knowing a thing about it. Sorry about this, but it's it's on my mind and in my head and it feels a bit close to home. And I know many of you will be aware of what it is that I'm thinking or how I'm feeling about this. So, uh, so uh, yeah, look, I'm sorry for, for waffling on. But before this happened, uh, I had a good conversation with, with Philippe Auclair before any of this stuff from Barcelona came through. So that's what I'm going to do for this podcast uh, from here on in. I'm not going to say another word. I'm not going to say anything at the end. I'm not going to do a bit after the music. I'm just going to play out this conversation with Philippe in which we talk about the start to our season. We talk about, oh, it sounds so fucking trivial, doesn't it? sound so fucking meaningless almost. But look, I know, look, life goes on. The world keeps turning and... Um, Tomorrow's another day and all that stuff. But look, we talk about lots of stuff. We talk about defending and transfers and Alexis and central midfielders and all that kind of crack. So it's a good chat, as it always is with Philippe. Uh, but this uh, precursor, this intro, I'm uh, sorry, hasn't been my most entertaining or uplifting one of all time. Uh, if you've listened to it, thank you. Uh, I might put something on the website or in the podcast description to tell people that this is what's here. If they don't want to listen to that, I wouldn't blame them. The world's fucking tough enough already, but uh, I just kind of feel or felt like I had to talk about it, so I have, and that's it. So let's do it. This is uh, this is the Arscast, episode number 434, my conversation with Philippe Auclair. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've done this, folks, uh, take it easy and uh, look after yourself. All right, joining me now on the Arscast, delighted to welcome back as ever, Philippe Auclair. Happy new season to you, Philippe. Season's greetings to you, Andrew, and to everyone. <laughs> Season's greetings, indeed. We got off to uh, an interesting start, I guess you'd say, against against Leicester. Uh, we've sort of done the game, um, it, yes. the specifics of the game uh, on Monday with James and the Arsecast Extra. But just in terms of how you get your season going, too often for Arsenal, it's been it's been a slow start. Yeah. This this was anything but, and I think the three points were clearly very important. Um, yes, I mean, what was quite remarkable was how it mirrored what had happened against Liverpool the season before, but with a, um, well, exactly, it mirrored it as it, the, the image was inverted at the end, so mm. that it was a 4-3 score line, but um, in favour of Arsenal, I mean, I, I have to say when it was 3-2 up, I mean, like everybody who was at the ground, I thought, here we go again. Uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. And especially given how optimistic um, Wenger and some of his players had, had seemed to be in the preseason. Uh, it would have been an absolutely awful result, but it, it was not. As you say, it was a it, it was a very strange game. Mm. I was there. 
I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. I laughed in the end, I suppose. <laughs> it, was it was amazingly entertaining, all these sort of things. Um, it was also, I think, quite rich in, um, I wouldn't say things we learned. I don't want to talk like a, a bad Guardian column here. But um, things um, perhaps with some, uh, some light thrown on some uh, situations. Uh, I'm thinking of the Giro one in particular. Yeah. Um, as well as on, on La Cazette and how he could fit in. And also some of the, um, obviously some of the things which are miss, still missing in the squad. Sure. So it was, it was a very interesting game as well as, a, as, as in the end, an excellent result as it, as it turned out, especially since uh, a couple of the other, I, dare I say it, titled contenders, I've said it, um, had a pretty tough weekend. So That's well, true. All, all in all, uh, very satisfactory, I have to say. Quite I mean, a, even though the way it got there to be satisfactory was was not that satisfactory. Sure. Well, we might touch on the defending because uh, I, yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts on, on something in a minute. But I think when we look at that Leicester game, how interesting is it that Arsenal have gone out and bought a striker for £50 million, Alexandre Lacazette, who opens his scoring in the second minute, you know, gone immediately is all that pressure of getting your first goal, which we know has been an issue for, for really good players in the past. You think of Bergkamp and Henri, who took so long to get off the mark. But uh, bookending that result was one from Olivier Giroud, a player who many thought would be on the way out because of the arrival of, of Lacazette. I think that's quite an interesting uh, dynamic there, that, that there is a new Arsenal, there is a new thought about how to attack and what way our attacking play is going to go, but also there is a need to retain some of the qualities that we already have with uh, Olivier Giroud and I, I was I was glad to hear that he was going to stay for the season because I think over the course of this campaign he is a player that we are going to need even if his Ooh, yes. role is going to be slightly more limited than it has been. It's difficult to tell uh, Andrew I mean I've been talking to quite a lot of friends uh, about this and obviously and I've talked to Giroud himself and to Wenger about his situation um, he made a very brave choice. I mean, he, he refused. He, he could have gone from the club. He had an open door, as Wenger confirmed. He could have gone to a club which would have, where we would have paid, been paid more money, where we would have been a, uh, a, a starter. That's that's Everton. Everybody knows about that. Uh, there were offers from other other leagues as well, um, and he decided, no, I'm going to stay put. And um, and it was not a Winston Bogart kind of uh, I'm staying put. It was very much um, the staying put of somebody who wants to fight for his place in a World Cup year, yeah. a World Cup season. That, that's quite admirable. One of the reasons why uh, his decision is unlike perhaps decisions taken by other players in the past is that he thinks he's going to have the opportunities and I think he's going to get them. It's not just the fact that you can already, um, if he's fit, put him down for every single European League game there's going to be this season and there might be a few. <laughs> Um, and in this so-called smaller competitions, the fact that he's bound, uh, even if he's on the bench, he's going to play 20 to 30 minutes of every single game, I would imagine. But also that there are some teams at, in, uh, against which I think he will be first choice, mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, away from home uh, in teams that, for example, pose an um, aerial threat, uh, where he, because he contributes an awful lot in terms of defending uh, particularly on, on dead ball situations. I know that's a little bit exotic when I'm saying now, but <laughs> it's something which I know is on his mind is that also they're very conscious of that at the club, that he can bring something there too, mm. which, like I said, obviously cannot bring. 
also the fact that Lacazette scored after something like 98 seconds doesn't necessarily mean he's completely adapted to the game. When I talked to him after the game, he, he said it had been pretty tough as far as he was concerned, in particular the kind of treatment that he had from, uh, um, you know, Wes Morgan and, and, and Maguire. Mm-hmm. So it might take him a while in another, in another, in another context to show exactly what he can do. And also, I was quite pleased with the way that they worked together, Lacazette and Giroud, towards the end of the game when Lacazette moved to the left. Yeah. And uh, where he looked really at ease and uh, he didn't look like um, a central striker who had been, you know, put in a very awkward situation or in a position he's not used to. Yeah. His runs were... Uh, were clever, but also at, at, at a part of, they, they, I wouldn't call them instinctive, but they, they felt natural. They didn't f- feel forced. And uh, so he can play in that position, which, given the fact that we are not too clear yet as to what's going to happen to the squad on after 31st of August, uh, by which I mean who's still going to be there, um, you could imagine, for example, in this kind of 3-4-3 formation, why couldn't he be one of the two behind Shiru, for example? So, I genuinely think that there's going to be room for both and that it will give um, Arsenal um, some attack, attacking potential, potentialities yeah. like there, or, or possibilities, which maybe they haven't always had in the past. Sure. Um, it was interesting as well, wasn't it? Because they, uh, you know, people talked about Giroud and Lacazette being A, incompatible, or B, as if, you know, there was a bit of a problem between them, people uh, reading things into, you know, non-celebrations in preseason games, which were which was absolutely ludicrous. But we yeah. saw that the two combined in the build-up to that fourth goal, Lacazette could have scored from a Giroud setup, uh, a Schmeichel save, and then from the resulting corner, Giroud got, got the winner. So, you know, that they're encouraging signs from an attacking mm-hmm point of view there um i'm going to come on to who might be there and who might not be there in a minute but just in terms of the the defense that arsenal have this tremendous record since moving to three at the back since the three center half options um but i was interested by a a statistic put up before the leicester game by opta joe which Uh is uh arsenal's expected goals conceded with a back three was 1.66 per game compared to 1.18 per game with a back four. Um, I, I think most people would say we're, we're doing very well with that three at the back formation. How much do you think Arsene Wenger will be reading into a statistic like that? Because I'm quite sure that he's paying attention to it or is aware of it at the very least. Um, uh, and when we look at this season's centre-half options... There are some questions still to be asked about what the makeup of that back three is going to be, particularly yeah. if Gabrielle leaves, if Callum Chambers leaves. Um, uh, we do have the new boy, uh, but there there are some questions still over this back three system. Yes. I mean, I don't think we can use the, the Leicester game as any kind of example worthy of this name, because when you have... Uh, Nats and um, Montreal and, and Holding in, as a back three, that doesn't make any sense, basically. Yeah. So we'll be able to judge that with when Laurent Koscielny is back. But I have to say, I didn't know that statistic, and I'm really interested by it, because um, Arsene has got quite now a large backroom staff of analysts, as you know, for the last two or three years now, he's had that. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, this, this is now bread and butter of, of analysis, the expected goals, and the difference is, is colossal. I mean, that's 
plus 50 percent <laughs> that's, uh, that's yeah. a little bit wor- that's a little bit worrying um i must say and i i, I would like to to go back to it and to to have a more in-depth analysis of this uh, you, you couldn't tell me exactly where these expected goals against were coming from because is it the fact that um expected goals on dead ball situations expected goals on a ball crossed from the lines expected goals in in what kind you know i'm saying that, that that's why they will they will actually go uh, in in great detail um i can't imagine it's um it's on dead ball situation anyway i'm i'm talking nonsense here <laughs> um it's I'm wondering if the uh, going to three at the back, the main thing was to free some space on the on you know for players like Oxide Chamberlain, mm-hmm. um, who was very good in that. So it was I think it was more of an attacking move than a defensive move, in some ways. Yeah, um, a way of of um, owning space when you're we're now working in a league where the tactical setups have changed quite dramatically in the space of of what a few months. Uh, since I believe 17 of the 20 teams uh, last season played with the back three or back five, um, to which you should add West Brom, which played back with a back six or back seven most of the time, it seems. <laughs> uh, but there has been an awful, there has been a big change, and you, you've got to, to to go with that. And I think that was one of the of the reasons that and the injuries as well, which happened to various people in the defensive sector. Um, you went back to a back four of sorts against Leicester when things were really bad. But there again, I don't think you can read too much into that because everybody's noticed the fact that we had four fullbacks, including two which were on the wrong side. Um, so I don't think you can read too much into that. Uh, I was really intrigued. Have you heard about these things about Virgil van Dijk as well? I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that. You what, can, you can what, edit that out if you, if you haven't followed that. But there, there, is some, there are some rumors that... Um, Arsenal could be a late incomer for uh, for Van Dijk after ah. uh, Gabriel and Chambers leaving, which would make an awful lot of sense. Well, it would make sense, wouldn't it? Because when you look at the the roster of centre halves, Mertesacker's in his final year, Koscielny, uh, still a very good player, but uh, dealing with that ongoing Achilles issue, and that's something they're going to have to manage throughout the season. Mustafi is there, Rob Holding is there, and I think as a, a young centre half, he still has some learning to do. As as yes. Arsene Wenger spoke about at the Football Writers uh, event that that you uh, you were part of, and we'll talk about a, a little bit later on. So yeah, if they do let Gabriel and Chambers go, it seems to me that we need a, a central defender so um, mm. if you're hearing things about Virgil van Dijk that's um, that's certainly very interesting well from the time being they, they might just be uh, idle rumours mm. you know it's, it's very tempting to um, especially when it comes to so-called swap deals which are things which almost never happen in football in fact yeah. I think the, the, the Galas call one uh, was a kind of swap deal is about the only one I can think of which actually happened but I guess people are getting a bit excited. And of course, the Van Dijk situation uh, is bizarre. He, nobody's expecting to stay at Southampton, but nobody expects him to go to Liverpool either. So yeah. I guess there's an awful lot of hot air circulating at the moment. So feel free to drop that on the cupboarding floor if need be. Absolutely um, not. I'm leaving that yeah. all the way in. Um, and I'm leaving this bit in too, just so people can get a behind the scenes of how, how a podcast might work. Um, <laughs> but 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 just in terms of the 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 defensive side of our game and also maybe the we, we're, we're replete with options uh, from an attacking point of view and where it does feel like we're a bit light or we could be light is central defense if those players go but also central, well, central midfield, midfield is, is that central somewhere midfield. that you feel we, we need a, a, yes. 
a body? Yeah. Because I certainly do. Yeah. Uh, yes, I do. And you know what I was thinking of um, yesterday when I was watching Celtic? I was looking at, um, you know, apropos of nothing, but apropos of Arsenal. Because uh, I saw a player there who is exactly the type of player that Arsenal haven't got, uh, who is the young Enchan, uh, the player... Uh, who, was, who came from Genoa to Celtic for 4.5 million. Mm -hmm. Just the same way that I used to think that Victor Wanyama was exactly the type of, of player that Arsenal needed. And I had exactly the same response when I saw him. I thought, gosh, this is a, you know, a player who does a little bit of a Gilberto Silva a kind of job, sort of invisible wall, yeah. um, and who has a great sense of placement and knows how to make himself available to the back four or back three or back five to have transitions, you know, in the transitions when you bring the ball from, from defense. It, it sounds very simple. It's a very difficult thing to do, to, to find these pockets of space, to have this sense of timing. Um, it's a bit like um, a striker or a winger timing a run. Uh, midfielders, too, have to time the way they, you know, they, they move in, in midfield, perhaps not at the same kind of speed, but they've got to have the same alertness to, to space as, as a forward has. And that's, a, that's the side of the game that I think can go completely unseen. Gilberto Silva was the ultimate master in that, because you were wondering, how can he do such great work when he doesn't seem to ever do anything? And well, <laughs> because that's what he's good at. And some players are good at that. And at the moment at Arsenal, even if I've got quite a lot of regard for Mohamed Elneny, whom I think is a, what people call an honest player, somebody who will give you exactly what you think is going to give you game after game after game, I don't think we've got that player yet. And I don't think we've had it for a very long time, in fairness. Mm. Maybe we haven't had it since the great Gilberto Silva um, left the club, to my eternal regret, something that I will never, never get over. <laughs> and um, I, I think that the problem is more there, and that I, I feel that the, the the opponent is given far too much, far too much freedom uh, in front of the back three or, or back four. That there is not enough. Uh, it's not just snapping at the heels, but also cutting the channels, cutting the you know, the uh, the space, occupying the space where the pass can be made. And again, these type of players are very, very difficult to find. And uh, when you see one, I think for me, they're, they're, they're blindingly obvious that they're, they're very good. And I'm talking about this young chap and jam, but I'm not saying because I want him to go to the Arsenal. It's precisely because when I saw him, I thought this is exactly what is lacking in the team at the moment. Do you feel like that is more or less the missing piece if we, you know, leave aside the, the centre of defence, which of course well, is hugely important, but there is there is the personnel there at the moment uh, to deal with, with central defence. Whether that's true yeah. in a week's time remains to be seen. But, it, you know, to me it feels like that is the thing, the, the, the glue kind of that we need to be able to link, uh, you know, our, our, uh, the three areas of the field together as well as we should be able to, to do it. Yes, I mean, I, I genuinely do feel that. Uh, of course, at the moment, we, we're all speaking in the conditional because we still do not know whether Alexis is going to um, stay for the last year of his contract. I think everybody feels that um, the Ox and Ozil will probably do. Uh, but at Alexis, there is still some a lot of uncertainty uh, you, around it. Do you think that, so, actually? Can, can I be just yeah. interject there? Because it, to me, it feels more like Oxlade-Chamberlain is the one over whom there are m more doubts. Because 
throughout the summer, Arsene Wenger has been absolutely categorical. And I know he said this stuff before about Van Persie and Nasri and Fabregas. And I, I realize I, I went through it. We, we all lived it. We were there. Um, yeah. But the financial situation was very different. And I can't remember him ever being quite as strident as often when it comes to a player staying. And he said, Alexis Sanchez will be an Arsenal player when the window closes. He will accept it which sort of hints to an idea or the idea that maybe (laughs) Alexis wants to go. With Oxlade-Chamberlain, he is a bit more... He's a bit more open. He says, I want him to stay, but he's not been quite as categorical there. Do you feel like there's still the possibility of Alexis going or Arsenal allowing Alexis Sanchez to leave? Because to to me, it's, it's hard to see where he goes. Manchester City appear to be the only destination at this point unless PSG find another 100 million down the back of the sofa, which is not, of course, beyond the realms of possibility. But the the idea of Arsenal selling him to Man City, I just don't see it happening. So it, it, it seems more likely to me Alexis will stay. I agree with you, and that's what I've been saying for the past, the, the past six months. And um, But two things. First of all, when Arsene talks about players and, and contract situations, the message is not aimed at us. It's aimed at the players and their agents and other clubs. Uh-huh. So they're playing hardball with Alexis because they simply want the agent and Alexis to understand, you know, just uh, just take it easy, guys. Uh, we, we want to play hardball. There is not quite the same uh, intensity around uh, Alexis. Um, well, Alexis, not Alexis, but Alex is. Uh, Oxygen, yeah. <laughs> that is, uh, situation. And um, so this might explain this in part. The second thing is I heard Arsene say something very interesting during this um, FWA do that we will just say a few words about. Um, it was that he said you, you should prepare yourself to, to have far more players staying until the very end of their contract. And you should also be uh, prepared to clubs keeping players until the very end of their contract. When he said, when he said that, I thought, you're talking about Alexis, aren't you? <laughs> um, because he said, well, the, 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 on the agent's side, what has changed is that they're taking in, on, to, uh, on board the inflation, which is hitting the market mm. every, every 12 months, basically. And so when you, in a way, when you delay the decision, you stand to make more money in 12 months' time, if it is indeed the last year of your contract. There's a big signing on fee coming. Uh, there will have been uh, yet another upsurge in the market. Nobody's seeing an end to what we, you know, is predicting an end to what we are seeing at the moment. So it makes an awful lot of sense. If you're in the last year of your contract, go to the end of it. You'll make more money by staying than by leaving now. And the second thing, it means the clubs are also the same. Uh, they, they, they take a financial hit by not selling. But they are also uh, in a situation where they don't have to find a replacement at extra at an extra price. So, in a way, I can understand that. And when he said that, I thought I genuinely thought he's talking about the situation of three of his players, Alexis. But he's also talking about Oxley Chamberlain. He's also talking about Mesut Ozil. Yeah. And uh, that's that. That I I found it fascinating. And. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Arsenal in this particular occurrence, especially since, as you said, the financial situation is completely different now than it, what it was when, when Van Persie left, uh, if they did what Bayern did with uh, Mikhail Balak mm. and say, OK, you know, you're staying last year. No, you're not going. 
uh, if you and you'd better be good because people might not come for you if you are completely pants uh, during the season. They will show that you're just a mercenary or something like that. Yeah. So it's it's a gamble worth taking. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is, but it's interesting. With, well, look, whatever Bayern did with, with Michael Ballack, that's one player. Arsenal have three players, two of their star players, Oxlade-Chamberlain, yes. who I think is you know, a very useful squad player, but um, seems to be refusing any new offers because of his desire to play as a central midfielder or, or to get more playing time. I don't think it's necessarily uh, so much about the money with Oxlade-Chamberlain, although I do think it's uh, it's got to be a factor, of course, when you take into account who his agent is and what his agent has, has done in the past. But, you know, the the financial thing is interesting. Arsene Wenger saying that the club might have to take a financial sacrifice or make a financial sacrifice because they could get, let's say, fifty million pounds for Alexis Sanchez this summer. Yeah. However, if they give Alexis Sanchez what he wants, which is somewhere we believe between three and four hundred thousand pounds a week, and let's round it down to just over three hundred thousand pounds a week. If they don't take fifty million pounds from now and then renew his contract next summer, they've got to pay him sixty-five million pounds over the course of four <laughs> years. So that's that's certainly a factor. And actually, something he said at the event that you were at, the Football Writers Association event, um, he said, "You speak to an agent, and he says, today my player is earning three million pounds, but with all the money, the TV rights, and when we see what others are earning." We want eight million pounds. Yep. And he says, and we can't raise someone's salary by five million pounds like that. Now, I, three million pounds sounds a lot of money, but it's low, generally speaking, on the the footballer's salary list. That's about sixty thousand pounds a week. But when you're talking about players like Ozil and uh, Sanchez, who are earning one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty four, one hundred and thirty, one hundred and forty thousand pounds a week, they want to double that at least. You're talking about uh, raising their salary by a bit more than five million pounds every year, and I think that was quite pointed as well, wasn't it? He was talking about yes. these players wanting massive rises in money, which you can understand because they're at the peak of their careers. They're at the top of the market themselves. If they went to another club, they could expect a big salary. But it, it, it perhaps feeds into the way Arsene Wenger is thinking. It's not necessarily so much about keeping those players because they're great players, although that's a big factor. It's because of the financial uh, side of it as well. Yes, I entirely agree with you. I think the two are intertwined and are completely uh, indissociable at the moment. 
I, I'm 100% I'm with you on this one. And that we will have to see uh, Arsenal's transfer dealings in that light for the foreseeable future. And um, by the way, I think it's a perfectly rational way to approach the transfer market. Mm. And um, it also makes me very grateful that uh, Kodeshi Nats was uh, acquired for precisely zilch, yeah. which, is, which is quite exceptional. Um, but um, I mean, even if his salary must be um, hefty, I would imagine, as, as he is. Sure. Um, so, uh, but again, you know, we're what, 17th of August in, uh, I think we should probably have a similar chat in, in 14 days or 15 days. And um, when the situation will, will be a little bit clearer. At the moment, we're really speaking with what ifs and uh, uh, not buts, right? <laughs> if you see what I sure. mean. So I, I, it's, it's all very conditional, but... I, I can imagine a situation in which all three players stay uh, for 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 next for the season, forthcoming season. Wow, which I mean, should be jolly good news, by the way. Well, yeah, I think so. I think so. But it, it means there's a lot to do in this final twelve months because it, you know it yep. doesn't necessarily mean that all three are going to leave either if they don't sign you know straight away. There is the possibility of convincing them during the course of the season to keep them if you want to invest that much money in them. Um, mm-hmm. And and maybe of of the three, if Arsene Wenger believes Oxlade Chamberlain is going to be the player that everyone in England is talking about in two or three years, maybe he's worth the investment from that point of view, rather than someone like Sanchez who'll be twenty nine and you get nothing for um, uh, towards the end of his contract. If we assume that players stay longer and longer towards the end of their contract, but also. The, the market itself is a strange one, isn't it? Because Arsenal have a lot of players that they have deemed surplus to requirements this summer. Lucas Perez, Kieran Gibbs, Carl Jenkinson, Matthew Debushi, maybe Jack Wilshere, despite what Arsene Wenger said. Uh, a couple of others who could be perhaps uh, on the out if we can find people to buy them, but but we're not, we're not necessarily able to do that. What our valuations of those players are and what people are prepared to pay appears to be quite different. And, and also... The, there are two markets now, right? There's the European market, and then yeah. there's the English market. Yeah. And uh, from from Europe to England is expensive because everyone knows that the English clubs have money. From England uh, to England is also expensive because all the clubs <laughs> know that they have money. But um, <laughs> you, uh, Europe or from England to Europe tends to be lower because the clubs can't afford the same thing. We look at Gabriel perhaps going to, to Valencia for £10 million, which is in the current market, it seems very low. Um, and you look at Europe to Europe, uh, Blaise Matuidi has gone from PSG to Juventus for about €18 million, Euros, €20 million. Euros. Even yeah. v- Wojciech Szczesny going from Arsenal to Juventus for around €13 million. Euros. Low prices. And the English market is it's hyperinflating itself. It's becoming more and more difficult for players or for clubs to move on players that they don't want. Well, you've got to take into um, consideration as well the fact that in the, the past year there's been this thing... Uh, which happened in in Britain, which means that uh, sterling has uh, dropped uh, twenty cents. Ah, uh, uh, yes, which which is a lot mm. uh, against the euro, which explains why you know the fee for for a Gabriel can can look really quite small. Uh, but you know, this, is that such a new situation? Is the uh, when you take into uh, consideration this the Brexit effect, uh, which is also an effect on wages, by the way, which is perhaps even more damaging because we're talking not just about a one-off payment, we're talking about wages over a five-year contract. Mm. 
um, that that also that starts to explain quite a few bizarre things which have been happening. Uh, yeah, you could say, for example, had Mohamed Salah uh, been sold to another Italian club or to a French club rather than um, than to Liverpool, would he have been sold for so much money? I don't think so. Genuinely, I don't think so. Um, and you can carry on like that, but unfortunately, there's nothing nothing much you can do about it. Um, it's just a reality in which Arsenal and all the other Premier League clubs have got to fight. Again, I was taking the example of Chan, who came from Genoa to um, uh, to Celtic. Now, he costs 4.5 million, but he's already uh, a French international at every age category that you can think of. Mm. So he's, he's already played two seasons in Serie A, okay, at 21. If he had been sold to Arsenal, would he have been sold for 4.5? Of course not. Over 10, easily. Mm. Over 10, easily. So, I, I, I can't see a way around it. I can't see a way um, to, to, to change anything in that. You know, you've got 20 clubs which basically have got too much money. I've got too yeah. much money to spend. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it's it, it, crazy. <laughs> It is crazy because it, it completely, as much as we talk about something like the Neymar deal skewing the market, and it does to an extent because yes, it becomes yes. in some way a benchmark, the Premier League market is just totally skewed because you just can't really figure out what what way clubs are going to operate. Like you look at you look at what Manchester City did. They were going to sign Danny Alves before he decided to go to... Uh, to PSG. Now, it was going to be a free transfer, and I, I've got free in inverted commas, obviously, because yes. City were going to pay him a good signing-on fee and everything else. But because that didn't work, their next option is to spend £50 million pounds mm-hmm. on Kyle Walker. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort <laughs> of like jumping from one extreme to the other. Yep. Um, their situation was a little bit different in, in, in economic terms. Um, even you know, even if I think exactly the same thing as, as you do, and I think most people do about the transfer fee, uh, they got rid of 10 players. And players who were on very big wages, most of them last season, they, they, have, a, they have quite a lot of money to spend. Uh, they have got actually an, a huge amount of money to spend. Mm. Uh, when you get rid of 10 players who are on an average, I don't know, um, between, I mean, some of them, like Zabaleta, I would imagine, was on big salary. Um, Clichy was on a big salary. Sanya was on a big salary. So they've actually got a lot of money in the bank. Plus, of course, the might of uh, uh, Abu Dhabi uh, behind them, which is something uh, which irks Arsene Wenger a great deal. Um, but yes, in, they they have been throwing money at, at their defense for 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 quite a while. Uh, how much is it that they want to pay for Johnny Evans, for example? Um, I mean, they probably will have to pay an excess of twenty million pounds for him, mm. for a player whom, whom I doubt will be uh, in the starting lineup. Yeah, I very much doubt it. Uh, similarly, I mean, the fullbacks they've bought. Um, I mean, they they will have to be. Uh, one who will be sacrificed. I mean, amongst at least one amongst Danilo, Mendy, and uh, and Walker, and all of them cost an awful lot of money. Yeah, uh, and you can carry on like that. But this is the financial reality in which you know Arsenal has has to live today. Mm. And um, the fact that what we are seeing is that within the Premier League, we are seeing 
what is happening in a great in a wider context, which is that of Europe, where you have a super elite of five or six clubs. We now have the same thing in the Premier League. We have a super elite of six clubs plus Everton. Mm. Um, when I say, well, I should say five clubs plus Tottenham and Everton. <laughs> Tottenham are in an interesting situation. Know your us. audience, Philippe. That's what that is. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you just finally about a little bit about Arsene Wenger? Um, watching the video of the Football Writers Association event, he seemed in, in good form. He yes, was funny, charming, uh, as he is. Uh, quite often but he's come through I think probably a very what he would uh, agree was a very difficult and challenging time in in the six months leading up to uh, the FA Cup final and subsequently his his new deal having spoken to him how do you how does he seem to you I mean is he as enthused as encouraged as ever is he is he up for it up for it And, and I think is at peace with himself again that's how I would describe it because, well, of course, there was the um, the Q and A lasted for quite a long time, but we spent about you know 45 minutes an hour in, in the green room before before then just chatting and about football and he was telling anecdotes which unfortunately I, I can't possibly repeat, but which were absolutely hilarious. <laughs> uh, but he was in great form. He was really relaxed and um, I think very confident in in the group of players he's got, and especially. I think he's come to terms with what his attitude had been last season. He was actually very apologetic, I, I felt, uh, about the fact that his indecision and, and the contradiction between the, uh, the message he was passing to the media, yes, I've taken my decision, but, and I will tell you soon, and the fact that there has been no decision taken is something which had a huge impact on the group. Does he, he, he feels he, that was a mistake, doesn't he? Yeah, he felt he, he made a big mistake and he feels really responsible for that. And I think he's come to, he, he's now forgiven himself for it. And um, he's, um, you know, he's uh, as he's always been, as in, you know, he's an incredible optimist, uh, incredibly passionate about his own job. But I, I, I found him more at peace um, this time round mm. than when I talked to him um, before the beginning of last season, where I thought, mm, uh, there's something not quite right here. Yeah. Now I, I don't feel that. I don't feel that. Uh, I think he wants to have some fun. I mean, he's got these two years, probably his last contract, you would think. Yeah, <laughs> we've said that you before. Would think, you would think, I don't know, I don't know anymore. I wouldn't put money but, on it. Uh, but. You know, it's, uh, and in, in, a, in a funny way, um, the, he's also forgiven himself the fact of not being in the Champions League, I think. And I think like everybody else, at the back of his mind is the fact, oh, let's have a look at what happened recently, Chelsea, Leicester, Liverpool, almost. Not being in the Champions League is such a huge advantage. Did he say anything to you about the Europa League and what his approach might be towards that and how he, how he views that particular competition? I think he will take it as um, the, uh, whatever it's called, the Carabao League. As in, you would expect Per Mertesacker and uh, and a few of the others to have a lot of playing time in that. I think it will be, um, yeah, he will take it half seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, he will take it, you know, the usual way, um, usual discourse. Oh, we want to win every game, blah blah. But he will, of course, protect his players. It's all for the league this season. Absolutely, all everything is for the Premier League. And um, because it's it's a it's an unusual situation to be in uh, for him. <laughs> It's the first time. Yeah. I mean, if you accept the uh, UEFA Cup 
you know, um, uh, when in, in the very first season, I mean, Boris Semich and Gladbach, is that right? It was the first game of which he was present. Yeah. And then um, there was the UEFA Cup after we, I think, wasn't it one of the years when you drop out of the yeah, Champions League when there were two group stages when we got to the UEFA, the UEFA Cup final against Galatasaray, of course? That was, that was, that, that was later on. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. that was later on. But in, in any case, um, it's, an, it's an unusual uh, situation for him and for the club to be in. Um, he will be able to concentrate all his energy on, on the Premier League. And also, I mean, this sounds it's pretty bad to say that, but the team won't have to deal with the heartbreak of going out of Europe in February, uh, which I think had become a problem. And I don't think that the, the group generally, genuinely believed that um, it would go through. Mm. Or, and, and every time it was a dampener, through a dampener on, on the season. And uh, it certainly played a, a role as well in the fact that the autumn months, as we know, November in particular, have been difficult in the past. Uh, when you play every, um, you know, three games a week uh, and, and the Premier League doesn't really protect you, it becomes a real problem. You, and being in the Europa League is completely different. It depends how you approach it. And you can approach it like, for example, Manchester United did last year which they paid for in the league, by the way, because yeah. they took it very seriously from, from the beginning. I mean, Paul Pogba played 15 games in the Europa League last year. It's crazy, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I wouldn't expect, if he stays, Alexis, uh, to, to play 15 games uh, in the Europa League should Arsenal go, go to the very end of it. So, I, I, again, I would expect uh, the teams he will select for that to be a, you know, B-plus teams, not A-teams. Sure. Not more than that. Okay, well, look, it promises to be interesting, even by virtue of being just different uh, yes. from, from what we've seen before. It, it could well be interesting, and hopefully hopefully, the manager's enthusiasm for uh, for the Premier League will uh, pay dividends towards the end. Philippe, we better leave it there, and we will most yeah, definitely catch up with you. Go on. Andrew, just one word. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I was really struck by the atmosphere at the Emirates on, on, on the Friday of the game against Leicester. And I think an awful lot of my friends who were there in the, in the stands were too. Uh, it had been a long time since I'd felt uh, the Emirates crowd to be behind its team that much and that passionately. And I'm not just talking about the last few minutes, which were, comp- I mean, it was pandemonium, it was fantastic. The, the noise was fabulous and the Giroud song, the way it was sung, that was really, really special. But you really felt throughout the game that there was genuine will uh, from, the, from the fans to be behind the team. And I'm, doing, I'm not saying that as, as a propagandist for the current regime or anything like that, far from it. It's just something I felt. And more interestingly, something that many of my friends who are season ticket holders felt as well. It could have gone wrong if, you know, if Welbeck hadn't equalized just yeah. before half-time, that probably would have been different. But there was really something to build upon here. And I think that Arsene and the players could feel it too. But, um, and, and that is perhaps for me the, the reason to be the most optimistic. Because if I could, honestly, Andrew, if I, my wish for the season is I wish the team and its fans to reconnect in the way it used to be. Because what was appalling last season was mm. the way in which there was now uh, a distance 
had been established between the two. And as a football fan, there's nothing as horrible as that. I totally agree with you there. It would be absolutely great. And, you know, it is, it's a symbiotic relationship in many ways. But, uh, you know, I think if it is collective, if there's a togetherness, then it's certainly a much more positive experience for, for everybody involved. So, uh, yeah, that's good to hear. And uh, hopefully, hopefully that will last right throughout the, the season until May. Um, Philippe, as ever, thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.